Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, this is Billy Campbell from Sci-Fi's Helix, and you are listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now, this is episode 107, and we have two great interviews for you. First up, Julie spoke with two of the stars of Sci-Fi Channel's Haven, Emily Rose, who plays Audrey Parker, and Adam Copeland, who plays Dwight Hendrickson. They discussed their experiences acting on this series and just started airing its final season. Its final season, that's very sad. I know. But it'll be exciting. They're, they're on a roll. Then we have an interview with writer-director Arthur Vinci about his sci-fi film, Found in Time. We learn more about how the film was made and get some great tips for filmmakers. Now, before we get started with the interviews, we should point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend Tishan Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our interviews with the stars of the TV series Haven, followed by an interview with filmmaker Arthur Vinci. Hi, thank you both for talking with us today. Um, now, yeah. <laughs> I've had a, I have a question, a character question, kind of for each of you. Now, Emily, you touched a little bit on this earlier, but you've had to play several different personalities during the course of the show, and unlike mm-hmm. some other sci-fi shows, you didn't really have the help of any sort of special effects makeup. Um, how did you go about creating these distinct yet connected personalities? Well, it's always about you know the team that gets assembled and uh, communication. You know, when you're in theater school and you have a character class, you know, you're it's all that responsibility lies on you, and it's a lot about experimenting at home and observing people's physicality and kind of you know getting to work on that. And and what's great about the TV and you know movie industry is that you have these professionals in each of those fields to sort of help collaborate with you. But it's hard, too, because, you know, I'm used to, like, the theater side of, like, going home and working things out and trying to work it out for myself, and you have to be able to communicate that to everybody. So, first of all, I never, when I signed up for the show, I had absolutely no clue that that was the direction it was going to take, um, that I would get the opportunity to play all of these people. So it just worked out so great, because that's like an actor's dream, to be able to be shown versatility and be able to play with that um, on screen. But really, you know, in the beginning, it was um, Stephen Lynch, my amazing makeup artist, and JoJo's, <laughs> JoJo, Joanne Stamp that um, is, you know, did hair. And then um, we had uh, Stephen doing um, wardrobe as well this year. And But he was he was so great because 
he would, you know, bring in a bunch of options for us or for me wardrobe-wise, and we would talk about, you know, I'd say, like, with, you know, Lucy this year was something I really wanted her to have this, like, leather purse. She needed, you know, um, something for carrying, and that really helped me with my physicality. And uh, But then also all the work that we actually had Dorothy Martin, who was doing my makeup this year, um, doing a bunch of stuff for Lucy and some other looks that I needed. And it's just through the time of getting to sit in the makeup chair, I just remember there's, a, I think, a couple more things that we got to do this season. And just sitting and being able to watch the character come together and then um, to watch Stephen Wright come into the to the trailer and look at, you know, uh, to be in wardrobe and then to have Dorothy there and to have Joanne there and us together look and kind of come up with something that felt good for all of us. And then to have the producers come in. And I, I remember specifically probably one of the biggest victories this season when it came to characters was we worked on you know, a collaboration of a character. And I walked on to set right next to Matt, my showrunner, and Stephanie and a bunch of other people and just kind of walked them, just kind of was watching. And they kind of turned and looked at me and, like, said hi to me as if I was a visitor. And I remember <laughs> inside going, yes! <laughs> Pulled it off! So it was really exciting because they flipped out because they looked at me and said hi like a visitor and then they kind of looked again and then looked and then were like oh my word you know so that's always really exciting when you can pull off that kind of you know transformation and it just comes from having a really good team and then um just a small I'll make this short but just a small little story that like this year probably right before I played a lot of the Lucy stuff I ended up really hurting my knee. My meniscus and my ACL went out um, when I was on set. And so I was having to figure out, okay, how am I going to cover this up? Because I still have to walk and I still have to look normal and I have to maybe be wearing a brace. But it was really cool because we were able to conceal it, but yet that sort of leg thing really fed into my character and it really worked and if I wouldn't have had that injury at that moment I don't even think I would have thought of half of the stuff that I needed for you know Lucy in those moments and so it was sometimes the biggest mistakes can turn into the greatest gift if you let them do that so and you're open to it and you don't get all bummed and fight it you know so just a big collaboration of you know messy creativity and then just throwing mm -hmm. something to the wall and seeing if it sticks. Um, my favorite arcs and moments. I really enjoyed playing Lucy um, this season. And one of my favorite, I would say, creative actor moments was um, being able to work with uh, Lucas as a director on his episode he directed, which was episode 517. It was such a, it was such just like a cool moment to watch something that your friend you know, has wanted to do for so long and to watch him just succeed epically at it, you know, was really, really, really fun. So that whole experience, Audrey is kind of a, uh, how do I put this without spoiling anything? It's kind of a very heightened, surreal episode that kind of isn't necessarily based so much in reality. So 
it was really, really cool to watch, you know, everything that Lucas had to do to prep and to be involved in that for him to act in it and then to be able to take direction from somebody that you have, like, you know, such a great vocabulary with and then be able to work so well with and watch the whole crew come behind him and support him and then also have some of the most killer shots we've had the whole season, you know, done on his episode because of what he kind of thought was, you know, and, you know, it it was just a really, really cool experience all around. So that was really neat. And I think even like one of, again, I think one of his good friends, Tim was working on that episode as well. So it was just really, it was a really cool, it was just really a neat experience, I think. And then I think also the end of the series, you know, you just want to do such a good job and you want to do your characters justice and you want to do the stories justice. You want to feel fulfilled and that people will feel fulfilled. And you're just so freaking nostalgic with everybody that you, um, that that was a really sweet memory as well. So, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, for Adam, you, you mentioned a little bit, we talked a little bit about um, the, your personal growth as an actor and also Dwight's personal growth since he's, he's been on the show. Now, when you joined the cast, did you know then that your character would become such an integral part of a show and its mythology? Absolutely no idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, so the story goes is that um, Sean Pillar, some of the producers and writers saw my retirement speech from WWE and said, hey, we can get that guy because they wanted to tie in from WWE SmackDown leading into Haven on Sci-Fi. So that was the genesis of it. But then, you know, I think it was just supposed to be a one-off episode, a few scenes, and that was that. Um, Apparently, halfway through the scene, a call was made to LA and said, can we write a bit more? And it became a slow growth of four episodes, the next season seven, and so on and so on. To the point where, with this last season, it it really uh, it kind of blew my mind, to be honest, um, to be so heavily involved with, uh, you know, as I said earlier, kind of really pivotal moments for this series and the town, and that affected all of the characters, and uh, so that was it was pretty huge. Um, it was a lot of fun, and after the first season where I kind of just went, oh, okay, I, I, this isn't a thing for me. I don't know what I'm doing. And I really enjoyed it. And from that point on, like I try to do with anything that I enjoy, I locked my teeth in and, and uh, just went after it. So it was a lot of fun to, to do this and experience it. And it really gave me another path and another season in my life that I had no idea was going to open up. Um, so I, I can say that this show actually changed, it completely changed my life. I just want to say, though, because Adam wouldn't ever say this about himself, but as somebody that was on the outside, and I mean, I kind of felt bad a lot of times because I barely, I mean, if I kind of also liked it because I also got to just view him through the friend lens. But, like, I didn't ever really know or see anything of what he had come from. Like, I just, you know, I heard tale of it. I heard tale. It it was pretty cool, though, because he would, you know, be open and honest about just, you know, trying to figure out how to, is this part working, is this working? And I think one of uh, Adam's best moments of the entire, uh, you know, series <laughs> happened this season, and that was with Lee Rose was directing um, episode 
I, guess, I think it was 519. Yeah. And there was a really big emotional moment. And I know that Adam was kind of, um, I don't know, just like every actor is, just a little, you know, intimidated of if that's going to happen and, and not really knowing what it'll look like and not wanting to force something, but also wanting it to be very real and authentic. And, you know, he he did take and was, you know, was like, okay, that's great. And then they both just agreed. They're like, let's just do this, you know, one more time. I think we can even go further with it. And it was a really, really, really beautiful moment from Adam. And it was really great to be there and to witness it and to watch him have that personal acting victory that we all have these milestones in our acting career where we're like, you know, I'd hope to achieve this. Can I do it? And to watch him, do that and it's such a great beautiful side of Adam and something that he brings to the role that it was just so exciting to see that and to see that for him and to see where he how much he has even grown I mean he's always been fantastic but just you know when you're when you act beside your friends for so long you, you know exactly what they want to work on or where they want to grow or what they want to achieve and so, so to be there and to be able to see that is always really exciting and Adam does some great great work this season for sure that's great thank you so much and we look forward to seeing the rest of the season thank you thank you Hi, I'm Victor Miller. I wrote Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Genretainment. You sure you want to do this? Just push me back. Well, hi, Arthur. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Julie. Hey, Marks. How are you guys? Good. Well, it's great to finally speak with you on the show. I remember when we first met a few years back at Gen Con. What was that like? Um, it's probably whenever your film Found in Time was premiering, right? Uh, yeah, it was uh, 2013, um, which somehow doesn't seem that long ago, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and at the same time, feels like it was like a lifetime ago. That was three Gen Cons ago. I know. I know, right? Only, only two. Oh, no, I guess, yeah, That's if you count great. that. You had the 2015, the 2014, and then yours is the 2013. I know. Yes, you're right. It's Three that generous. new math. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been a, a supporter of the podcast and, and also my book online, which I really appreciate. And so it's really great to have you on to talk about your feature film, Yeah. Found in Time. So, you know, you wrote and directed this film. It's sort of a blend of, like, a film noir meets sci-fi and drama it's a little hard to describe a little bit for me. So can you tell our audience about the film? Sure. Um, Found in Time takes place in an alternate present-day New York City. It's populated by psychics whose powers are, are real. And uh, many of them sort of eke out a living as street vendors where they sell their their wares. Uh, they sell the products of their, their abilities. And uh, Chris, our hero is a collector. That's his particular gift. Uh, he compulsively picks up what looks like junk wherever he happens to be. 
except that everything he picks up will have a use for somebody in their future, uh, even if he doesn't quite understand what use that'll be or who it's going to be useful for. He somehow intuits that this this object that he's picking up, this button, will match the button that you lost on your suit, um, for example. So the downside of this gift is that he experiences time in a very sort of nonlinear way. He goes, he slips time. He goes back and forth between the past, the future, or futures, and the present, um, and isn't always aware that that's what's, you know, that, that his experience is any different from anybody else's. Um, this obviously makes life a bit difficult for him and also for his girlfriend, but uh, it, things get much, much worse when he commits a murder in his future. And then he realizes, I've got to somehow get control over this and change my present and maybe something in my past to try and prevent this this future from happening. Um, and so we're kind of along the along for the ride with Chris. Uh, I don't really, uh, there, there's not a lot of time spent in the film trying to explain what's going on. You're just sort of thrown into it. You know, that's that's provoked a, a, a range of reactions from people <laughs> uh, <laughs> ranging from, Hey, this is great to, Oh my God, what the hell am I watching? So <laughs> oh, just, to filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's actually kind of cool. I, I wouldn't want people to come out going, well, that was exactly average or exactly what I expected. So, yeah. Now after your description, I'm sure there's probably, you know, in reality, stranger things happening in New York any given day. <laughs> How did you come up with the concept of this film? Well, um, part of it was that I've been um, thinking about time uh, for quite a while and wanted to do something, um, you know, a story that had time as one of its central elements, but I didn't want to do something too dry uh, or too, um, or, or do something too sort of, I guess, traditionally twisty turny where, you know, if you just sort of thought it all through, it would all work out, you know, uh, like, uh, I mean, I like primer a lot, but I, I didn't want to do primer or, uh, or memento, you know, something that's ultimately very linear as, as long as you can sort of, uh, later on, you can kind of, uh, think about it and bend it back into a, a, a linear timeline. Um, so I thought, you know, what if our emotional experience of time is actually the way things really are? And this sort of linear description of time where we have, you know, the present and the, the futures in front of us and the past is behind us. And we're sort of like, you know, the, the, the needle on the record player, you know, that's our present. Uh, what if that is actually a fiction? you know, a sort of carefully maintained fiction. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was part of it. Part of it was that I had written a much sort of more conventional sci-fi script and I was hoping to get some financing for that and everything looked like it was going to go forward. And then the financing fell through and I just got really frustrated and unhappy and, uh, and angry. And, um, and of course that's when, um, sometimes that is, the best time to go off and write. So, because <laughs> um, then, you know, I started thinking, well, you know, screw it. Why, why am I trying to, to do uh, uh, something? Yeah. I think maybe part of the reason it didn't come through to come together was because maybe it was too conventional. 
so what if, what if I had to do something entirely with my own resources? Um, that could be very limiting, but on the other hand, maybe I could do something that was a little more out there and a little more challenging. Um, you know, cause why not? There's, there's no pressure. There's, there's no investors looking over my shoulder, or very few investors looking over my shoulder and, and do something that might make a mark or at least, uh, be artistically satisfying, you know? Mm-hmm. So, cause if you're going to go through all this, you might as well be satisfied creatively at the end of it. You're surely not going to be satisfied financially. So, <laughs> um, you know, you might as well have, have a good time. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> if you don't enjoy uh, and, it, there's no point in doing it. Yeah, exactly. So I figured this was something I could. Once the story elements started coming together, I started bringing in pieces of character, pieces of scenes and characters I'd been thinking about for a long time, and I just kind of let everything come in as opposed to trying to outline things. I it was a more passive, in some ways, writing process, and uh, whenever I felt I was doing things the way I used to do them, where I would explain everything to death, I kind of shied away from it and went in the other direction. So that was that was kind of how it all came together. Mm-hmm. And I guess probably because uh, you jump around time so much and, and kind of repeat certain or alternate timelines and stuff that helps with budget because because uh, you can reuse sets and locations and stuff too. It's kind of a clever way of doing that while working out sci-fi elements. Mm-hmm. You're you're right. That was like one way that I could do things like show. Uh, it, there are a couple of points in the film where I basically have this similar scenes acted out in different ways to sort of represent different timelines. You know, it's a way of doing some sci-fi stuff without spending a lot of money. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no uh, wormholes, no wormholes, <laughs> or popping up naked <laughs> like Terminator. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you know, that, in, in retrospect, maybe I should have had some, some naked people running around, but you know, if you can get a professional bodybuilder, go for it. There we go. <laughs> so what, uh, okay. You're, so what? you're thinking about naked people. Running around. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. What naked people are you thinking of? I'm thinking about my next film. There we go. No. You're, gonna, you're, you're thinking you're going to be sleeping on the couch a lot, is what you're thinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> so before we talk too much more about the film, let's talk a little bit about your background. Now, how did you first get involved in filmmaking? Well, um, I grew up uh, thinking I would be a writer with a day job. You know, that was sort of my career ambition because I, I, I knew most writers don't make a lot of money. So I just figured I'd... I'd find something to do to pay the bills and then I would write until, you know, I wrote the great American novel that everybody loved. Uh, and then, uh, I guess I, I started thinking, what if I could do the day job and be satisfied with that, you know, like make that more interesting. And I thought about all the things I'd grown up with and enjoyed a lot. My mother was a writer and a still photographer and a graphic designer. So I learned still photography at a very young age. This is, I'm old enough to remember working in a dark room. Uh, I love the dark rooms. I miss the dark rooms. Oh yeah. I mean, you just lose yourself for hours in there. Yep. I mean, at the end of it, you look and you realize you've printed exactly one thing you're happy with, but (laughs) it was, there's something, there's something to be said for 
touching uh, the medium that you're working in. Um, I don't, oddly enough, Especially I don't feel the naked actors. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> watching you on your next project. Well, the funny thing is I don't feel that way about editing film. Uh, I found film editing to be a giant pain in the ass. Um, so I'm, I, I like nonlinear editing, but, um, but in terms of still photography, yeah, there's something wonderful about that process. But, uh, so yeah, when I was like, you know, trying to figure out what to major in and what to do with my life. You know, uh, film seemed to be like natural um, meeting of art and also engineering. Uh, I like tinkering with stuff. Um, I was working on, a, on computers from a pretty young age, so it seemed like a good way to, to, to combine all those things. So I went to film school. Uh, and, uh, you know, God, I, I, I'm not one of those people who's against film school. I think it, a lot of it depends on what you put into it. So I tried to put as much into it as I could. I, I, one of the things I didn't really understand back then was the importance of networking. So probably could have gotten more out of it if I'd been a better networker back then. Um, yeah. where'd you but, go? Uh, NYU. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. I got very lucky financial aid, uh, <laughs> saved my bacon. But yeah, it was, it was a pretty good program. I met some, and you know, you get, I think one of the things it does for you is it is, uh, apart from, I mean, the technical stuff I think becomes outdated very quickly, but, uh, you get some space and some time to really figure out what you want to do and how you want to do it. And, uh, you get kind of thrown into working with people who you don't even necessarily like, which is, uh, but it's a lower pressure situation. So, yeah. Not like you're going to get fired. So <laughs> it, it had a, it had a lot of its uh, a lot of um, upsides. Uh, yeah, and then just after that, I worked in New York in different crew positions, and then gradually uh, got to a point where I could direct uh, uh, my first film, Caleb Store, which was okay. It wasn't great, and uh, uh, all the people working in it did great work, but I think I wasn't quite up to snuff yet as a director. So. Which is, I guess, part of what first films are for. I was going to say, and that's really what it's for, is to get you Yeah, <laughs> but it always takes so long. So by the end of it, you really, really want it to be fantastic. Uh, but, you know, most of them just aren't. So by the time I directed, I also started line producing, which was really great training. Um, uh, working on other people's projects, you get to... And in that position in particular, you get to really learn the nuts and bolts and you get to watch directors and producers make a lot of really bad mistakes, uh, expensive mistakes, and um, you get to be very creative with money. So it's a good, it's a, it was a really great training ground for making the next, for, for figuring out how to make the next film economically. So, And I'm assuming you filmed in New York, right? Yep. That was one of the things was... Uh, Partly so I could take advantage of the crew that I knew and the cast, but also uh, I wanted uh, everything to be sort of, you know, close enough so that we could travel to the location and back. Mm -hmm. Couldn't afford to put anybody up anywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's very smart. Now, 
Found in Time is online on video demand, and mm-hmm. uh, before that, it played a number of film festivals. I think it even won a few awards, right? Yeah, uh, it premiered at Shriekfest in 2012 and won a Best Sci-Fi Film there. It's it won Best Feature at the Art of Brooklyn in 2014, and won Best uh, Sci-Fi Film at Intendance and uh, Phoenix Comic Con and uh, shocker fest so it's it's i pretty happy with how it how it did at the festival circuit um and uh, especially the fans i mean i love i love uh film festival uh and especially genre festival fans they're just great and if like someone's trying to market trying to get their sci-fi film out to a film festival what if some of those i'm sure they're all good but what's one or two of those that you would definitely (laughs) tell people to try out i think shriek fest is terrific it's in its 15th year now so uh, obviously it's it's closed for this season but the organizer denise gossett has been doing it from the beginning and she's uh she's an actress and did a lot of horror films so that was the impetus for creating the festival was so that she could find a way to showcase all these films that she knew about or had been in that weren't getting out there, you know, in the, in the sort of more mainstream festivals. And it's really grown into something really special. Uh, she makes filmmakers feel really welcome. The Phoenix slash international horror and sci-fi festival was, was amazing. I think the Gen Con film festival has, has just grown enormously. Uh, you've, you've been there, uh, this past couple, you've been there since I've been there. Uh, I've been in touch with the organizers and every year they're showing more stuff. And I think they've worked out some of their audio things. Uh, You know, I mean, sometimes the conventions, you are not going to get a great, you're not necessarily going to get a fantastic projection experience, but the fans are some of the best you'll ever find. You know, they'll, they'll ask you really good questions and uh, they'll stay for the Q and A's and some of them are filmmakers also. So it's great to like network other play Boston sci-fi is really good. Uh, there were festivals I didn't get into, which I would recommend anybody making a sci-fi film to get into, like Fantastic Fest and Toronto After Dark. Those are pretty big ones. Imagine Fantastic out in the Netherlands I got into. That was, uh, I unfortunately didn't go, but um, uh, they were pretty awesome. And they screen in DCP, which is great. So you get to you get to see your film in the best possible quality you're ever going to see it in. So, wow. Yeah. Making the DCP was a pain, but it was definitely worth it. <laughs> so. And now it's online on video on demand. Uh, what are some of the platforms that people can find it on? Uh, sure. So it's on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way for people to find it. Uh, it's also on Vudu. And it was on the Dish Network for a while. I don't know what their schedule is, so it may have been it may have come down. It's also on uh, Vimeo on demand and VHX. And uh, I have links to all of those from my site. So whatever your pleasure is. Uh, if, if you have Amazon Prime, it's free. So it's <laughs> oh, yes, right. pretty easy. Yeah. And just to pick one of those, because um, I've heard some, I've heard more and more indie filmmakers talking about VHX, for example. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, where are some of the advantages of that video platform uh, and how that experience has been? Uh, sure. Well, um, VHX is pretty new. Um, it's I think two and a half years old, but they are essentially trying to be like a back end as it were. 
so that you uh, people when when people come to the VHX site for your film, it looks like it's specially designed for your film. Uh, so it's it's unlike Netflix where you go to Netflix and then you find your movie. You know, you just go to the the URL they give you and you you're right there, uh, oh, okay. ready to rent your film. So it's really built for filmmakers to build out a channel. And I think they're one of the things that's great for filmmakers is they are uh, they provide you with very granular data about who's watching your stuff and what their email addresses are so uh, you can stay in touch with them. Like it's sort of assumed that you can build a fan base with VHX. Um, I find that the data reports I've gotten are, are more um, have more detail than the ones I've gotten from Vimeo. I like Vimeo a lot, but um, the video playback is pretty smooth. I think they auto-encode things for different resolution screens pretty well. So... You know, I've watched Found in Time on, on my phone and uh, uh, tablet as well as on the big screen, and it looks pretty smooth, so uh, no complaints there. They seem very open to talking to filmmakers. I went to one of their open houses. They're based out in Brooklyn, so it's very easy for me. Um, oh, that's convenient, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and they, they've started to do things like offer filmmakers and, and television uh, uh, web series creators the ability to create their own channel. So, you know, you can upload all your content and offer subscription services, you know, just for your channel, uh, you know, so people can pay a flat uh, monthly fee or per episode fee. So it's, it's kind of exciting. It's, um, you know, just a different, different, slightly different model than Vimeo. Again, I like Vimeo a lot, I think, and a lot of people know it, but I think VHX has a lot uh, going for it. So now talking about, I know while creating the film, making the film, filming the film, um, <laughs> <laughs> was there any particular like challenging moments that you faced? Because, you know, it, you know, we, we make films, too, so we know <laughs> crazy stuff happens sometimes. Pretty uh, much yeah. by the hour, as a general <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rule. Um, you know, some of the some of the craziness, I mean, I was able to plan for and keep to a minimum because I did a, a lot of prep work. I was in pre-production for about nine months. Um, not like full time, but every day I would do something, you know, uh, tweak the script or, or do a location uh, scout or get, you know, go buy a prop or something, talk to crew people, uh, casting. So I, I took it slow rather than try to ramp up and, and get really crazy and that, that helped a lot. That helped smooth out some problems. Uh, I lost uh, my original lead actor a few months. Uh, sorry, two two and a half weeks before the shoot started due to a scheduling conflict. Oh, that's uh, always fun. Yeah, and I mean, it was the kind of thing where I tried to go through the steps, uh, you know, mentally and on paper of moving the schedule around to make it all work. But it would have meant rebuilding the shoot from scratch and possibly losing a couple of other cast members and maybe one of my crew. And so it was a difficult decision and uh, I liked him a lot, but, uh, uh, we had to recast, uh, but you know, th these kinds of things I I've learned from experience that these kinds of things can sometimes be blessings in disguise because, yeah. uh, McLeod, the, the guy who came in at the last minute was just knocked it so far out of the park. It was just great. So, in terms of the actual shoot, like I think our the night before one of our 
what was supposed to be a fairly quiet day and fairly doable day, I left my, it was kind of stupid. I, I went to get the keys for the location we're shooting at the next day. I parked the equipment van on the street and went inside for one minute and then came back out and somebody had broken into the car and taken my cell phone. Oh no. So, however, they left all the equipment, which was <laughs> including the camera, which was sitting right next to the cell phone. So, you know, that's like, wonderful. Yeah. It was like, this is horrible, but oh my God, you know, they didn't take the hard drive or the camera or the lights or any of the other stuff they could have just as easily gotten. So, you know, they, I mean, it was my fault for leaving the phone visible in the, in the window. So, but you know, as a result of that, uh, not having a phone and just sort of being generally upset, you know, I think I got like an hour sleep. So the next day, uh, just turned into a slog. I was not bringing my a game as a director. And I think, uh, uh, we had a couple of uh, sort of more quiet scenes. And the funny thing is, like, those are the things you think will be fast because they're just like, uh, it's just a couple pages with some dialogue. And uh, we were just having a hard time getting th getting through it, getting it to have some energy. But, you know, we got through it. You know, what the what we all kind of decided to do is to break it up into smaller chunks and do, and and do more camera setups so we could put it together in post the philosophy behind the shoot as a whole was to to combine camera setups and do as much as we could within one setup just so we could move faster so we wouldn't have to do traditional coverage um and uh we did a lot of moving masters and uh swingles throughout the shoot as a way of you know sort of swinging singles uh as a way of of shooting as many pages as we did. We, we shot the whole film in 13 days. So, wow. uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> but you know, it wasn't so bad. I mean, we were outside a lot. <clears throat> um, we, you know, we probably the, should explain what a swingle is or, or swinging single is. Yeah. Someone's like, what? A swingle? What's a swingle? <laughs> well, I don't know. They, swinging single could be fun. I mean, it could be a lot of fun. Um, well, in, in a traditional scenario, if you had a three-way conversation, uh, <laughs> oh my God, this is getting terrible. And a, a conversation between three people, <laughs> you would uh, pick up a master shot and then two two shots and then individual singles or close-ups on each of the actors. And maybe you'd also have to do some other, you know, additional setups. But, you know, if you count that up and then you multiply that by the number of takes you need to get everything right, you know, you could be there all day just to do two or three pages. And we averaged about eight pages a day. So uh, what we did was we would do uh, moving masters where we uh, on one take, we would focus on two out of those three characters. Uh, and on the next take, we would focus on the other two, you know, so that way the editor could put put things together. Uh, what we would also do is is move the camera at certain points from close up to close up. We would, which is where the the idea of the swinging single comes from. So you're swinging the camera from close up to close up. So you're catching, you know, one character's line on one take, and then on the next take we would vary it so we'd catch the other character. And that way, if you do that enough times, like let's say you just run the scene like eight or nine times between those two techniques, now you have enough bits and pieces for the editor to, to cut through without having to go through the sort of more traditional process of, you know, going, 
uh, of shooting from from so many angles. And also sometimes you get really lucky and everybody's on, you know, just on fire and you get like the perfect oneer, you know, like one one take for one scene and then yeah. like you're you're it's great. Now you don't have to do any cutting. So, you know. Um it's magic when that happens. Oh yeah, and we had a couple of those. We had some really great cast and my director of photography is very good with cast people. He knows he's very good at beats and figuring out where the dramatic beats are. So he could often sense things before they were about to happen and then move the camera just at the right spots at the right time. So like a psychic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he knew uh, what was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which. Uh, speaking of which, it's, it just, it's, <laughs> the film deals with time travel. And psychics. And psych- I guess and it's not psychics. really time travel, but, you know, seeing time in the future. Um, we so, can go with time travel, yeah, too. So but, in real life, do you believe in either one of those? Um, I am... Uh, We're putting them on the spot. I love it. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a good question. Um, so, you know... <laughs> It's funny because I profess to be an atheist, and yet my first script, was, my first film, was about a guy trying to reconcile his relationship with God. You're uh, very so, conflicted atheist by the sound of it. I think so, right? And so now, officially, I sort of don't believe in in psychics. I mean, it's not to say, I guess the way I feel about it, and this may sound like a very wishy-washy answer, is I have no doubt believing that strange things happen that can't be explained within our current framework, uh, you know, and, and even the most hardcore scientists will tell you that our framework is incomplete. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we have, I mean, the standard model of physics, which is supposed to be sort of the be all and end all somehow leaves out somewhere between 80 to 96% of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. Dark matter and dark energy, you know, they're still trying to figure out what that's about. So, there's plenty of stuff that happens that I think is hard to explain or maybe impossible to explain given what we know right now. I think what I have a problem with is that the explanations that people come up with, you know, the sort of which fall under the category of sort of supernatural explanations, a lot of them are kind of too simplistic or too lacking or maybe a sort of wishful thinking, I guess. But, you know, at the same time, I sort of, I'm hesitant to I'm hesitant to say that they're wrong because a they could be right, and also to some extent it really doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. It's that funny thing where I think truth can also you one way to look at this is that truth can be manifold and subjective. Uh, so one person, you know, even if I don't find uh, a religious or spiritual explanation convincing. Maybe it's convincing to somebody else and it doesn't really matter which one of us is right. Or maybe we're both right, you know, mm-hmm. which is very confusing, but, you know, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, I don't think the, you know, the universe necessarily has to be completely consistent and complete. Uh, or or that it, the universe actually cares if we get it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that too. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think part of the excitement for me of artistically is is uncertainty and uh, that that edge of chaos. So I kind of enjoy uh, probing those areas, and um, it it bothers me less and less as I get older. That that's you know everybody seems to have a different explanation as to why things work the way they do. So. Does that answer your question? I think I feel like I either. No, it's sort of like the the line between science and magic 
right. it, it's, it sort of moves depending on our increasing understanding of what science is. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's kind and, of the vibe I got. Yeah. There are some really exciting uh, people who are doing work to try and look at um, uh, look at the relationship between science and religion or science and spirituality and are, and what they're coming up with is more interesting. Yeah, you know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Some of our greatest scientists even today subscribe to some religious belief. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's possible to be... I, and I and I and I deplore people who are militant. Uh, well, I deplore militancy in general, but Amen. I deplore militant <laughs> uh, militant atheists just as much as I deplore fundamentalists of any stripe. You know, um, I think I they, adore you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I was curious. You talked about how you originally started down this path because of your love of writing, and you kind of talked about maybe or at least hinted about writing books have you written any books or is that still a medium you're interested in i've written some short stories uh some of which got published a long long time ago in the student sci-fi magazine at nyu yeah that was fun i haven't done a whole lot of uh, i've done a few prose stories and uh i've got the bits and pieces of a novel sitting around. I have written a fair amount of nonfiction articles on filmmaking and uh, a book on filmmaking, specifically on pre-production uh, that, that Focal Press uh, put out. Uh, it's called uh, Preparing for Takeoff. Shameless plug. Cool. Uh, <laughs> and it's it covers the nuts and bolts of pre-production both from a director's and producer's point of view, especially since, as you know, you know, we all have to wear both hats these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of aimed at low budget people. Uh, well, not low budget people, but low budget filmmakers. So <laughs> sounds a bit wrong. You, low budget person. Low budget person. <laughs> yeah. Well, as a low budget person, I think it sounds fantastic. <laughs> To people out there who are listening who may be uh, want to be writers or filmmakers. Even have... after listening to us. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, my God. I'm never doing this. <laughs> what uh, what tip would you like to share? And and no nothing with nude actors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mark gets distracted. It, it's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think... A, you know, the more prepared you can be, the more free you can be on set. So I know the temptation is to go out and just shoot stuff. And I think that that's actually a great way to start. You know, maybe your first few shorts, you shouldn't try to overthink things. And you should, you know, as long as you can keep it cheap, you should maybe go out and, and shoot something and put it together and see how it goes. But once you start developing anything more complex, you know, it's time to, to the more sort of energy you can put into the pre-production stages of it. You'll you'll not only save money, but you'll also come to set with a better understanding of what you're trying to do, and that will inspire the crew and the cast. I think a lot of what leadership is about is about being prepared, and and people will trust that and follow you to places they wouldn't follow you otherwise because they're not doing it for the money, you know. 
and uh, you know, we'll look for really good collaborators, people who are willing to go out there with you. It, it may take a, some kissing of frogs, and believe me, I've kissed a few. <laughs> but it's worth, you know, just it's like any, it's like dating or any kind of relationship situation. You're you're going to have some bad experiences. You just can't let that stop you. Uh, just keep, you know, trying to find people to work with that you really enjoy working with and work on other people's stuff too. That's a great way to get experience and also meet the people you will Mm -hmm. want to direct one day. I think you should buy Marx's book. (laughs) Uh, no, it's, I'm now thinking about creating a, uh, I'm in the early stages of creating a web series and, uh, I found it really inspiring and, uh, just the right uh, amount of information for me to take in right now. Oh, you know? I knew I liked you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, but seriously, you know, I, I would buy, you know, I would, I would try to get, uh, you know, keep up with stuff, you know, listen to genre attainment, um, listen to, uh, or, or look at the uh, filmmakers collaborative, uh, film collaborative, sorry. They have some great tips and tricks. There's a, a, a uh, website called Film Specific that has uh, that focuses on distribution and financing, which are the two sort of most sticky areas for filmmakers. And uh, Stacy Parks, the person who runs it, has some. It's got a mix of free stuff and stuff you have to pay for if you're really broke. Just you know, soak up as much of the free stuff as you can, and then later on, you know, you can pay for it. One of the best books on direction I ever read was A Sense of Two, two books I would recommend if you want to be a director. One is A Sense of Direction by William Ball. The other is Judith Weston's uh, Directing Actors. Uh, yeah. Those two are just fantastic. I would add to that. Um, sorry, I said two. Now I'm, I'm, like the, I'm like the Spanish Inquisition. I keep adding. Um, so the third, the third book I would recommend is Audition by uh, Michael Shirtleff. Um, it's ostensibly about auditioning for plays and it's targeted at actors, but I found that it's actually a really great tool for writers uh, because it, it sort of shows, it, it contains within it some really great scene analysis, like a toolkit for analyzing your scenes and why they're working and why they're not working. And also as a director, it gives you, uh, when you're in the casting process, it gives you some uh, tools for directing actors, like giving them adjustments, like figuring out with them how to, uh, and, and also again, once you cast, like it's sort of helpful throughout the process, uh, when dealing with actors and with the script, like how to, how to wring more subtext out of the script. So, and it's pretty, um, it's pretty cheap, you know, it's paperback. So can't get that upset about it. <laughs> well, and that's good. Cause that's good advice to, you know, to stay on top of all these things because things change so fast. Oh yeah. The technology is just insane. The pace of it is just crazy. I mean, we shot found in time on the Canon 5d Mark two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still very happy with the way it looks. I have no, yeah, I think it looks it's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Uh, I credit Ben and, uh, uh, Ben Wolf, uh, the DP Simeon Moore, who is our entire grip and electric department. And uh, Vern uh, Matson, our colorist, with uh, creating the you know who who really just tweaked what Ben had had put in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I credit them with with you know creating a really good looking film. But what's interesting is you know nowadays people are taking cameras that are roughly the same size and shooting 4K on them. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> which is you know something we wouldn't have even thought about back back then. I I think it's the one thing I will say is is not to wait for the perfect camera or the perfect thing to come along. Uh, oh, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, and you're just going to go broke. And uh, I I feel bad for DPs because in the film years you could buy a sixteen or 35 rake secondhand. And that thing would be good for 20, 30 years. Um, <laughs> you know, as long as you kept it in good shape and, uh, you could rent that thing, you could rent that out as part of you uh, and you as part of a package. And, mm-hmm. uh, now DPs have to climb the treadmill and hope that they can get enough back in their day rate to amortize the cost of you know buying this equipment. So, yeah, it's uh, getting insane. Yeah, I mean, now they're talking about 8K TVs and 8K cameras. And oh, I'm like, geez. you know, I, I don't even know if that's even necessary. You know, I sort of, <laughs> I, I don't want the vendors telling me what I should be shooting on. Because, you know, of course, they're going to want to give me something new every year. So. I'm waiting for virtual reality 3D. That's yeah. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, to a certain extent, once it gets <laughs> so high resolution, I mean... It, the, unless you have a really trained eye, the average person just, they, you know, like I'm not going to notice. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, most people don't. I mean, I, I, I think know if I, it's it's like I like it or I don't like it. No, it looks that, good or it doesn't look. No, good. We went to, from standard definition to HD. There was a there major was a big, notice. Yeah, there was a big there, jump there. But it's getting less and less noticeable each jump. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and the truth is is that at the other end of this, at the delivery end. People are watching stuff on all size screens at all resolutions. And I think one of the reasons that Blu-ray didn't take off as well as the everybody had hoped was because a lot of people couldn't tell the difference between Blu-ray resolution and DVD resolution, you know, in the in the two or three feet away from their TV that most of them sit at, right? So yeah. it's a hard sell to get them to say, all right, I'll drop, you know, a couple hundred dollars on a on a Blu-ray player and then another few hundred on a HD level TV when, you know, and then the band plus then the Blu-rays cost more than the standard yeah. DVD. And everybody so, just got done buying a gigantic DVD library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, at some point so, it's like, Oh, that's it. I quit. I'm drawing the line here. Oh, yeah. I'm not going any further in technology for like five years. What happens happens without me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I remember it took, it took a lot longer than anybody thought it would to get VHS out of people's houses, you know, and then they got comfortable with DVD. And then, you know, I mean, I still have more DVDs than I have Blu-rays. So I really, I really save the Blu-ray for things that I'm really, you know, just have to have on Blu-ray. But um, even I can't honestly tell you, uh, you know, maybe sometimes I could tell you what the difference was. It didn't feel different to me. You know, so hey, you're talking to somebody. I, when other people were starting to get the DVRs, I was still programming mm-hmm. my VCR. You know? Oh, yeah, oh, it works, it's fun. Yeah, it works, I I, it yeah. works. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I can watch my I can watch my show and still go out. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been great chatting with you. And so, before we go, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Okay, so. Found in time related stuff can be found on foundintimefilm.com. I also have a Facebook page for the film called Found in Time. My production company is called Chaotic Sequence, 
Uh, the website for that is chaoticsequence.com. I guess those are the main ways to find to find me. I'm on Twitter, Chaotic Sequence. It's a bit long, but it you know works okay. <laughs> it's memorable, I guess. It is. Well, thank you so much. It was so yeah, much fun you. to talk with you, and and we're really grateful you were willing to stay up late and, and do this with us. <laughs> I don't know. Thank thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, hope to see you guys soon. Yeah, All keep right. in touch. Hi, this is Christopher Leone, writer and director of Parallels and one of the creators of The Lost Room, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Sci-Fi Channel for arranging the interview, and thanks to Arthur for chatting with us about his film, and we'll have links in the show notes. We are approaching Halloween, so our next couple of episodes have authors of a darker variety. We'll be speaking with horror writer Jeffrey Thomas in our next episode, and after that we'll be chatting with dark fantasy author Alan Baxter who I think might be my clone in, yeah, in he, Australia. Yeah, it's creepy. <laughs> not, not clone visually, but you know, no, not visually. We, we talk about that. It's creepy. For Halloween, it's perfect. Yeah, so be sure to watch for those episodes. Now, before we go, we want to mention that we have joined two other excellent shows to create the League of Geeks Network. The network can be found at blogtalkradio.com slash leagueofgeeks, where you can find genretainment and partner shows SFP Now and Super Geeked Up. Now, for now, our newest episodes can be found first at scifipostradio.com, and you can always keep track of us by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher, or by following our Genretainment Facebook page, Marks' Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, our website at genretainment.com, or all of the following shows at scifipostradio.com. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until next, Until next time! time. All right, well, let's get started. <laughs> that was a pretty good monkey for being sick. Oh, I guess, let me make sure we're recording, actually. Uh, yeah, you're, you're not recording yet, are you? Yep, yep, we are. Oh, you are? Yep, I got the monkey sound. Guess what's oh, gonna, shit. Guess it's going to be after That's the great. credits. <laughs> That's one for the real. Bad monkey.